The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I want to add a couple of comments to our study last week on miracles. We're going to study prayer tonight, but there's uh, and, and it's really a good dovetail of the two, our consideration of miracles last time and of prayer this time. Before we begin, I'd like to ask God for His help. Father, we thank You for this time tonight as we study Your Word and study um, the, t- the issue of prayer. And Father, I pray that You would make us uh, men and women of prayer. Lord, make us people who ask You for things and trust in You and who see You work in a mighty way. And Father, I pray that You guard me from error and guard our hearts, O Lord, from hardness and disinterest that we would be ready to hear and to apply all those things that you would say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we were discussing the issue of miracles. Um, I guess one of the things that I'm concerned about uh, is that we not be, through our unbelief, quenching the Spirit. In other words, that the Spirit would desire to work in a mighty way and that we would be quenching His action through unbelief. This phrase, quench quenching the spirit comes in a negative or prohibition which says do not quench the spirit in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, I fear sometimes that through unbelief we might do that, uh, that we might put a damper on things that he would want to do. Um, one of the issues or the ways in which I think this exemplifies it uh, itself is just in our own seeking of God in prayer. The fact of the matter is that there are supernatural manifestations of God uh, which he pours out to certain individuals, which give them a, uh, an incredible assurance of God's love for them, a kind of an experience of his love. And I spoke of this when I preached in Romans chapter 5. And uh, recently I was talking to some folks and it just occurred to me how this is most definitely a sign or display of God's favor to us. And I believe we're commanded in Scripture to ask for it, to keep asking until he should give it to us. Um, do you remember when I was teaching on this in, in Romans chapter 5? Maybe some of you do, but take a minute and open in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5 and you'll see the, the issue that I'm trying to deal with there. And it has to do with assurance of salvation. Now, a backdrop to all of this comes from a consideration of the preaching and the life and ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Lloyd-Jones believed that throughout the history of the church, God had moved, has moved, in mighty and powerful ways, which could be akin to the moving of God through the Spirit at the time of Pentecost, smaller effusions or pouring outs of the Spirit, which empowered and energized and prepared and strengthened the church for mission, for evangelism, for fruitfulness in the area of evangelism. And I think he's absolutely right. I think if you look at accounts of these kinds of things, what are commonly called revivals, but I think there's a, a focus that Lloyd-Jones gave to it uh, that it was specifically to empower us for witness, that we might be witnesses for Christ. 
and that uh, s- frequently there would be times in church, in church history where the church would gather for prayer and the, and the Lord would, would be poured out in a mighty way and everyone there would know that something unusual had happened. Now, I would definitely characterize that as a miracle, something that was extraordinary and remarkable and that caused people to praise God and to be filled with wonder and amazement. Now, the context in Romans chapter 5, if you look there, uh, verses 1 through 11 is a whole section on assurance, and I'm not going to go into all that. But um, I'm going to zero in on verses 3 through 5. It says there, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings uh, because we uh, know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And here's verse 5. Hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Do you see this pouring out? There's an effusion of love, a pouring out of love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Turn over for a moment uh, also to John chapter 8. Jesus, I think, speaks of this kind of thing in John chapter 8. I'm sorry, John 7. John 8 is a great chapter, but beside the point of what I'm getting at here. But Jesus is teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says uh, in verse 37, this is John 7, verse 37, On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this He meant the Spirit whom those who believed in Him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So He's talking about this experience that a believer can have in the Holy Spirit which He likens to streams of living water. And He says they flow from within Him. Now, I would think that they would flow out of Him. In other words, that he himself, the believer, would be satisfied, but it wouldn't stop there, actually, but that there would be an effect on the world around that spirit-filled believer who has come to Christ and drunk deeply. And this is the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Spirit. Now, we know in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so there's a direct relationship between the pouring out of the Spirit, an effusion of the Spirit, a giving of the Spirit, and effectiveness in evangelism. Sometimes you say, you know, I want to be a witness for Christ, but I don't see the fruitfulness there. I want to open my mouth and I want to speak. I want to see many people come to Christ. I'd like to have uh, many spiritual children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. The good thing about in the spiritual realm is that that uh, uh, generational thing can happen in one year. You could become a great-grandfather or a great-grandmother in just one year. If someone you lead to Christ then leads someone else to Christ and so on, uh, you can replicate yourself spiritually very quickly. It's kind of exciting. I led somebody to Christ recently, uh, within the last year and a half. And after church on Sunday about uh, two months ago, I said, when are you going to make me a spiritual grandfather? He said, I'm working on it. You know, He's witnessing, praying. There's some people he has in mind and he's eager to lead somebody to Christ. And so we're speaking in a very lighthearted way about that. But Lloyd-Jones was troubled by the fruitlessness he saw and the powerlessness specifically in the Anglican church, the English church that he was ministering to. 
And this is what he said. It is perfectly clear that in New Testament times, the gospel was authenticated in this way by signs, wonders, and miracles of various uh, characters and descriptions. Was it only meant to be true of the early church? The scriptures never say anywhere that these things were only temporary. Never. There's no such statement anywhere. And then uh, the person writing about this said, Lloyd-Jones believed in the steady state, regular, ordinary ministry of the church. Do you understand what I'm talking about when I talk about the steady state, regular, ordinary ministry of the church? It means the kinds of things you all experience here at this church and have experienced at other church churches, namely uh, Sunday morning worship, uh, the fellowship of the believers, uh, the gifts, uh, ministry of the Spirit, which are of, uh, not a uh, sign nature, but just the gift of administration and encouragement and helps and the other things, gift of teaching. And you receive benefit from these things, and these things are significant, and they have a long-term impact on the church. And Lloyd-Jones believed in that. Uh, and so it is when you, at, at, you're at a church where the Word of God is being rightly divided and preached with, with uh, power and with, you could say, unction, uh, there's going to be fruit there. But he was hungry and thirsty for more than that. Hungry and thirsty for more. Uh, it has its blessing and glory from the Lord, a, a steady state, regular, ordinary ministry from the church. Uh, but the author here says, I think he became increasingly disillusioned with business as usual toward the end of his 30 years of steady state ministry at Westminster Chapel in London in 1965. This is what Lloyd-Jones said. We can produce a number of converts. Thank God for that. And that goes on regularly in evangelical churches every Sunday. But the need today is much too great for that. The need today is for an authentication of God, of the supernatural, of the spiritual, of the eternal. And this can only be answered by God graciously hearing our cry and shedding forth again His Spirit upon us and filling us as He filled the early church. I don't know how we could possibly think that we don't need something like that. Why we could think that we can move on in a kind of a low level and, and lead somebody to Christ every year or two and that that's going to be enough. It isn't enough for me. I'm not satisfied with that. I'm not satisfied with that here in this church. I feel like there's so much more that God could do and will do through us as we seek Him. But I feel like the, the answer has to do with a concerted focus in prayer, a hunger and a thirst do you remember what Jesus said in John 7? Your Bible's probably still open there, but Jesus said, if anyone is what? If anyone is what? Thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Are you thirsty? Or are you just satisfied with your experience and your walk with Christ? Is it enough for you, this steady state ministry? Or are you thirsty? Well, what's Jesus' answer? He says, if you're thirsty, you should do what? Come to me. Well, what could be wrong with that? We should come to him. We should come thirsty. We should come expectant. We should come thirsty for Him. Now, when I preached this uh, sermon, I don't even know when it was, several years ago, I gave testimonies from church history of these kinds of effusions of the Spirit throughout time on individuals and also on groups. For example, I talked at that time about Blaise Pascal, 17th century French philosopher and mathematician. When he died, they found sewed inside his coat a piece of paper which apparently he had written years before and had sewn and unsewn and sewn and unsewn in every coat that he had after this experience, or after he wrote it down. And this is what he wrote. It says, This day of grace, 1654, from about half past ten at night to about half past midnight, fire. 
That's all he said. Fire. Can you imagine what that is? From about half past ten at night to about half past midnight. Fire. Then he wrote, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and the wise. Security, security, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, thy God shall be my God. Forgetfulness of the world and of all save God. He can be found only in ways taught in the gospel. Greatness of the human soul. These are just phrases that it seems like he's barely able to write them down as he's experiencing this. And then he prays, he writes down, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. Joy, 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 tears of joy. I have separated myself from him. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? That I be not separated from thee eternally. This is life eternal, that they may know you, they may know thee, the only true God, and him whom thou hast sent, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. I have separated myself from him. I have fled, renounced, crucified him. May I never be separated from him. He maintains himself in me only in ways taught in the gospel. Renunciation, total and sweet. That's what they found sewed inside his coat. Kind of, a, kind of an odd thing to find inside somebody's coat. What was he talking about? What did all those words add up to? Specifically, what did he mean from about half past ten to about half past midnight? Well, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Something happened for two hours to him so that he could measure it. This is a, this is a, um, a philosopher, a mathematician, a careful guy. He was a scientist. So it happened, whatever it was, for two hours. Or then Jonathan Edwards had this experience that he wrote down. As I rode out into the woods for my health in 1737, having alighted from my horse in a retired, player, uh, in, in a retired place, as my manner commonly has been, to walk for divine contemplation and prayer. So stop there. This is the regular ongoing life of Jonathan Edwards. He goes out into the woods and he prays. He does it regularly because he loves it and finds benefit from it. This is what you call the regular ongoing ministry of the church, Right? So he goes out as he always did. Anyway, he went to his place for divine contemplation and prayer. He says, I had a view that was for me extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God as mediator between God and man and his wonderful, great, full, pure and sweet grace and love and meek and gentle cond condescension. This grace that appeared so calm and sweet appeared also great above the heavens. The, the person of Christ appeared ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thoughts and conceptions, which continued as near as I can judge about an hour, such as to keep me a greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be what I know not otherwise how to express, emptied and annihilated, to lie in the dust and to be full of Christ alone, to love Him with a holy and pure love, to trust in Him, to live upon Him, to serve Him, and to be perfectly sanctified and made pure with a heavenly purity. Now, again, what interests me about this testimony is he says it went on, as far as I can judge, about an hour. Again, this is a very measurable thing that happened to him, something that occurred that was extraordinary. And I, I get the sense that he was on the ground when it was going on. It's kind of like he picks himself up off the ground 
when he's done. Or then there's the famous story of D.L. Moody, who had been a Christian, a minister in charge of a mission, was seeing people converted, but he was hungry and thirsty for more. He wasn't satisfied. He felt that something was missing from his life in terms of effectiveness and fruitfulness. And this is what he said. I began to cry as never before for a greater blessing from God. The hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with His Spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, it was on Wall Street, by the way. I think it's kind of interesting, of all things. The holiest thing that ever happened on Wall Street. One day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he never spoke for 14 years. I can only say God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. You had the feeling that his probably his heart rate had risen to a certain level and he just felt like he was at the limit of what he could take. Now, a Puritan writer describes this kind of thing which was common to the Puritans. They, they have lots of testimonies like this. They had these kinds of experiences. Thomas Goodwin described it this way. He describes a man and his little child, his son, walking down the road and they're walking hand in hand. And the, and the child knows that he is the child of his father. And he knows that the father loves him and he rejoices in that and he's happy in it. This is what we call the ongoing steady state ministry of the church. It's a good thing, isn't it? to know that your father loves you and that you're a child of the father. This is true. There's no uncertainty about it at all. But suddenly, the father, moved by some impulse, takes hold of that child and picks him up and fondles him in his arms and kisses him and embraces him and showers his love upon him and then he puts him down again and they go on walking together. Now, I guess I want to compare the experience of the child before and after. Is there a difference well, not in kind, but in intensity. It's not like the thoughts are different. It's just that everything used to be kind of black and white and now it's colored in. And I, and I wonder, you know, in, in my heart, I wonder if we're just too easily satisfied. I wonder if we just settle for something that's mediocre in our Christian life. You know, if take a minute and look at Ephesians 3 and, and you'll see how, how Paul prays for the Ephesian Christians you know, this is an ideal topic tonight to discuss as a kind of a bridge between miracles and prayer because you can see the relationship between the two. A connection between the topic of miracles and this issue of prayer. But how does Paul pray for the Ephesian Christians? Well, in Ephesians 3, verse 14 and following, look what he says. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of His glorious riches He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge 
that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now stop there. Would you say that that characterizes you? Filled to the measure of all the fullness of God? Is that your consistent experience in your walk with Christ? Paul wanted the Ephesian Christians to have that. He, he prayed, he got on his knees and in a very practical way, he prayed for these people that they would have power together with all the saints. Could that include us? Are we included there? That all of us may have this same power that he's praying for together with all the saints that we may grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I get a sense of the Grand Canyon, you know? the grand canyon of Christ's love, that you might have a sense of the love of God poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. A sense of the power. And, and, and He does it in a very logical way. If you look at the prayer, He kneels before the Father and He prays that out of His glorious riches, stop there, it's incredible, according to the riches of God, well, how much does He have? How rich is He? Well, he says at the end, verse 20, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So he's able to do more in this matter than anything you can imagine. He really is. He's able to take you higher in your experience in Christ than anything you could ever imagine. And he will. He's going to take you to heaven. He really is. He's going to take you to see Him face to face. I can say that absolutely with certainty if you're a child of God. I don't know if it's going to happen before you die. And I know that whatever experience you have here on earth will be less than what you have when you see Him face to face. I know that. But uh, I, He's going to fulfill this and He's going to do far beyond anything you can imagine. But I guess what I'm saying is now, in this precious time, while we still have life and an opportunity to store up treasure in heaven, wouldn't you like a little more of that as a down payment? If you look back at Ephesians 1, go back with me just a moment. It says in Ephesians 1.11, In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will, in order that we who are the first in, to hope in Christ might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. Okay, so the Holy Spirit here is said to be what for us? He's a deposit. The, the image here, I think, is of somebody who's, who's orphaned but incredibly wealthy, whose parents were wealthy, but they died somehow, and all of those riches were left in an estate, you see. And this minor has no legal access to those funds until they reach their majority, until they reach a certain age, right? But they are supported out of those funds with a kind of a monthly stipend. This thing, kind of thing happens sometimes. And so the, the monthly allowance comes to the, to the rich orphan that we're thinking of here. 
uh, to support this person through their education and through their needs and through their, you know, for their clothes and whatever they might have, a little spending money in the pocket, this kind of thing. And so it's an amount that's been stipulated, a stipend amount. The Holy Spirit is for us somewhat a down payment, a smaller measure of experience of the love of God and fellowship with God that we will have the full amount when? When do we get the full inheritance? When does that happen? When we see Him face to face, when we're in heaven. We get the full amount then. I guess all I'm advocating is wouldn't you like an increase in your stipend? Wouldn't you like to have a little more on the down payment? Uh, a bigger experience coming? Does God will that you would have this kind of thing? I can show you from Scripture He wills that you seek it. I can show that to you. I'll just quote the Scriptures, but it says in, in Matthew, Jesus says, Which of you fathers, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him. So says Matthew. But we also have Luke. Luke says something slightly different. Okay, Matthew says good gifts. We can ask God for good gifts. What kind of good gifts? Well, there are many things that we could ask Him for. But in Luke, he says it slightly differently. He says, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. I can't imagine a better gift than that. The Holy Spirit is given to us to minister the triune presence right to us directly, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we might experience his pleasure in us, that he might we might experience his presence with us, that we might be empowered for all kinds of ministry. By the power of the Spirit, we witness and do all these things. So I guess what I'm saying is that the Spirit does that. Jesus says, then you should ask the Father. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. I think that if you look at it, Jesus said, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit? Well, you could say there's a historical redemptive issue here and that the Spirit hadn't been given yet and so that they should pray and ask for the first effusion of the Spirit at Pentecost. And so they did. They remained constant in prayer and the Lord answered their prayer and the Spirit was poured out, right? But I, I think it would be reasonable to extend it beyond and say, let's keep asking that the Lord would pour out His Spirit on us again. Why not? Because it says after that that they were all in Acts 4 filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. You know what I'm talking about? The Spirit moved and they were filled again with the Spirit. What does that mean? I thought they already had the indwelling Spirit. Well, I'm not talking about the indwelling Spirit at that point. I'm talking about a filling of the Spirit. They already had received the Spirit in Acts 2, didn't they? The you know, and the Spirit comes and Jesus said in John, He'll be with you forever. So He didn't leave. Then what is this filling of the Spirit in Acts 4? I think it's this kind of experience that we're talking here where, where the Father picks up the Son and hugs Him and says, I'm here, I love you, keep doing what you're doing. Don't be afraid of the Sanhedrin. Don't be afraid of being arrested. Keep being bold. And they were bold, weren't they? They were fearless. Nothing stopped them. Oh, but we don't need that, do we? We're 21st century people. You know, we're so effective, aren't we? We don't need that. Well, I think we do. And for me, I'm, I'm yearning for it. I, I don't see why... You know, we couldn't have that kind of experience. I remember talking to somebody who was very cautious about experiences. And we, were, we had a, quite a debate or discussion about this. 
and he was afraid that I would teach these kinds of things in the church. <laughs> and I said, well, what, what are you afraid of? Well, I don't know. It just seems dangerous. I said, I think it is dangerous. It's dangerous to the devil. That's for sure. I don't know that it could be dangerous except that you seek a kind of an emotional experience apart from God. But I'm not advocating that at all. That's, that's a false religion. They're always seeking whirling dervish, dervish experiences. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about a laser focus on Christ. You look at Jonathan Edwards' testimony. Isn't that just lasered in on Christ, on his ineffable glory, and that Christ was this and that to him? I mean, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. So I would suggest that we're seeking Christ or we're seeking God through Christ. We're focused on Him. I say, how can you go wrong? Can you say, you know, let's say you do. You, you say, all right, the second thing he said is, well, what if people are disappointed? I said, well, you've already violated the Scripture because I was working on Romans 5. It says, hope does not disappoint because God has poured out His love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The end road here is not going to be disappointment. How could it be? How could it be? So I, I think instead that we should persevere. He's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Do you think he's going to give it to you after the first four seconds that you ask? Oh no, he might actually reserve these precious things. Some of these folks had these kinds of experiences only once in their whole life. Only once. So then I asked this person who was challenging me on this and we were discussing, I said, do you really think that on Judgment Day they're going to look back and say that that period of intense seeking of Christ was a waste? What was I doing seeking Christ? I should never have done that, taking all that time for prayer and focus and fasting and zeroing in on Christ. I should never have done that. Oh, I can't imagine something like that. I just think we don't do it enough. I think we're too worldly. We're too satisfied with other things than Christ, too satisfied with earthly things. And so I guess what I'm saying is if you want a miracle, why don't you seek this kind of thing? Why don't you seek the kind of blessing that God could give and seek it for the purpose of being incredibly useful to him in this world, that you might be empowered for a witness, that you might be you know, able through the Spirit to be his witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Give me the Spirit again, not doctrinally misunderstanding as though you don't have already the indwelling Spirit, but say, fill me with your Spirit. Let me know again that I'm your child. I'm not satisfied. Give me more of my down payment now that I might know again your love. And I think that he might do those kinds of things at a lower level many times in your life. If you continue instant in prayer for an hour or two, you really think at the end you're going to say, wow, what a waste. The peace, the joy, the sense of the fruit of the Spirit that's going to come, the sense of his presence, I think we ought to seek that. And I think it's, not, it's, it's going to have a powerful effect on our congregation. If you do it individually and then we come together and do it as a church together. How about this testimony from uh, John Wesley? January 1st, 1734. Mr. Hall Ingram Whitfield, that's George Whitfield, Mr. Hutching and my brother Charles were present at our love feast in Fetter Lane with about 60 of our brethren. About three in the morning, stop there. Okay. What do you find interesting there? What were they doing up at three in the morning? Well, they were praying. They were just praying all night. They were, they were seeking God. At about three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us, insomuch that many of us cried out for exulting joy, and many fell to the ground. As soon as we were recovered a little, little from the awe and amazement at the presence of His majesty, we broke out with one voice, We praise Thee, O God, we acknowledge Thee to be the Lord. Wow, that's something, isn't it? 
very much like Acts chapter 4. The place was shaken and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So there's a, an effusion of the Spirit poured out on a whole group at that part, at that point. Now, do you wonder why it didn't happen at 2 in the morning? Why does he wait until 3? You know? Sometimes I think we stop praying at 10.30. You know, long before it was going to come. Why does he make us wait? I'm going to ask you that. Why not at 10.30? Why only at 3 in the morning? Why do you think? Steve. Jesus asked the disciples in the garden, couldn't you pray? Couldn't you watch one hour? What does that imply in Jesus' attitude? There's a length of time. Yeah, one hour is... That we're expected. That's right, a length of time, and one hour is the short end. <laughs> it's like, couldn't you even watch and pray for one hour? Landis, what were you going to say? I'm not sure. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I was just thinking. Why not at 10.30? Why, why 3 in the morning? What do you think? Yeah, I, I think I think that's right, and I think I'm going to zero in on on you're begging God. Is that a bad thing? No, that's that's He gives the kingdom of heaven to people like that. So I think that you ought to continue as a beggar, a spiritual beggar, and ask Him. And I think that once He's got you, He's not going to let you go so easily. This is exactly the state of soul you should be in all the time. So it's not like okay, there for one minute He's been genuinely begging. We'll give it to Him. Well, no, he's going to hold out. He's going to stretch us. Not because he's not loving, but because he wants us to seek all the more and be hungry and thirsty for him. And that has a purifying effect on the soul. It has a, you know, so that we just start to focus on him. And you're right, after a while, time starts to go quickly. I'm amazed at our quarterly corporate prayer meetings, how quickly they go. Two hours. Think we're going to pray for two hours? Well, you'd be surprised. It really seems on the short end when you get done. Like, we don't really have a full chance. Yeah. I think you're right. I, I just think we need to be purified. I just think it takes that long for all the stuff to bubble to the surface, you know? I, I just think that we are we are just like the Israelites. We're syncretistic. We worship the true God and other gods too. And and it just takes a while for all of those other competing loyalties to drop down to the point where God alone is exalted in that day. And there's nothing else. There's nothing else you want. And when you've reached that point, I think then that's it. And whatever else God does in your emotions, in your intellect, your mind, whatever else, you've, you've reached the point at that, at that moment where God alone is foremost in your heart. He's all you want. Your thoughts are filled with purity and with, with whatever's true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. And that's a good place to be. So I guess what I'm saying is just let's not be so easily satisfied. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, Jesus said. Uh, if anyone believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water 
will flow from within you. I think they'll flow to the ends of the earth. I really do. I think that a spirit-filled church like that has an unbelievable, powerful impact on the surrounding world. But uh, it starts with us focusing on Christ first. So that's, like I said, a kind of a bridge between our consideration of miracles and prayer. Any questions about what we've been talking about tonight? Anybody unsure? Anybody? I don't know if this is the right thing. Yes, Steve. Can I give three cautions? Sure, please do. These are uh, what you're not talking about. Yes. Um, There are, I think, some unworthy substitutes for what you're indicating. One is uh, an external manifestation. The experiences are not something that satisfy with an external thing, like speaking in tongues or something like that. Second, it's not a chronic expectation. It's not something that you expect to live that way all the time. It's something that comes and goes, and that leads to the third one. Uh, It's not just a subjective satisfaction. It's something that empowers you to go and live a different life than you did before and be more effective in ministry. That's right. I'll give another caution, too, and I'm going to piggyback on one... one, uh, word that one of these testimonies talked about I think it was even Ed Edwards yeah this word annihilated I think Edwards didn't mean it the way you could it's not like a Hindu mantra tra- trance like state it's actually as Edwards was very full of content it's very full of concept it's full of doctrine it's full of a person Christ it's not emptiness which is what these these uh, Hindu mystics seek one other thing okay if you, if you would take a minute and look at 2 Corinthians 12, talk about another caution, I guess. I'm not sure it's a caution, but... Second Corinthians 12, this is Paul's account of his experience. I must go on boasting, Paul says. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. Verse 7. To keep me from being becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay, now what I want to zero in on here is Paul's introduction of the topic of the thorn in the flesh. How does he introduce the topic? To keep me from becoming conceited. Why? Surpassingly great revelations. They're directly connected to his experience, you see. God lifted him up so high 
that he needed to put kind of a deep keel and ballast on the on the clipper ship to keep it from tipping over. Right? So he's going up high in revelation and going down in humiliation. Question you have to ask, am I willing to pay that price? You know, am I willing to to have such visions of God, a such fullness of God that God has to, as it were, compensate through some kind of earthly suffering, through some kind of thorn in the flesh. I didn't make up the logical connection. Paul gave it to us. He said, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations. It was a compensating factor. If I don't get that, Paul says, in effect, I get toppled over full of myself. And so instead, God's going to humble me. So you say, well, now, wait a minute. (laughs) I'm not sure I want that. But then again, you have to realize Paul even delighted in the thorn, didn't he? He delighted in anything that made him weak. Why? Because it kept him a spiritual beggar. It kept him in the center of God's grace. And as a result of that, he was very, very fruitful for God. And I really think, isn't that the point of all what we're talking about tonight? Think about it. Any experience you have between now and your death will be nothing compared to your experience after death. Nothing. So why give it? Well, I think it's because what happens between now and your death is important. It matters how fruitful you are. It matters whether you lead a bunch of people to Christ or lead a mediocre Christian life. That matters actually a lot. And so I guess what I'm zeroing in on is what kind of return on investment is going to come between now and and then from your life. Are you going to be incredibly fruitful or are you going to be mediocre? Now, there's lots of things that can make you mediocre. Sin can make you mediocre. A lot of things. There's lots of ways I can preach this. But I'm zeroing in on this one thing here. Easily satisfied in God, not seeking Him as much as you should. And I'm saying that can make you mediocre too. So there's lots of cautions, believe me. I mean, there's ecstatic experiences in every religion. I'm not talking about that in and of itself. I'm talking about Christ, about his revelation. I just feel that the, da- the, the danger is far greater the other side right now. The flat deadness that leads to very little spiritual vitality. Satisfied too easily, pretty worldly, really thinking much about worldly things much more than God. I think that's the greater danger right now than the other. But there are problems the other way, believe me. We've seen them in church history and we may see them here. Any final comments before we get into a less exciting kind of careful study on prayer? Yes. I can, I can think pretty clearly of several occasions when, such, when I've experienced such things. And there are two things that, that I can say about it. Number one, um, this, the Scripture, your mind is just uh, flooded with Scripture. Mm-hmm just full of scripture, all kinds of things come to mind. And I've had a uh, tremendous urge to record, like you said, Blaise Pascal did. And mm-hmm. when I go back and read those things over, it's uh, just a reminder mm-hmm. yeah. of those experiences. Well, that's a wonderful thing. And then that's safety because you know, you're know you not in some babbling ecstatic experience that leads you into danger and false doctrine. But no, it's uh, and and isn't that what Pascal says? He said he he ministers to me or keeps me in him only in ways taught in the gospel. You know, I mean, it's very tied to the scriptures, tied to the accurate doctrine and theology. So what? So what should we do? Yes, Landis. Could I share one? Yeah, sure. Uh, because when I was doubting the existence of God before I came to Him, I I simply prayed, "If there really is God, I'd like some concrete proof." And one of the things after I came to Christ, I had no doubt about him and his reality, but I continued to seek him. I, I would pray to him just like he were a passenger, talk to him like he were a passenger in the car as I was driving along to work or wherever. Mm-hmm. And I remember one, it sounded a little irreverent, but one morning as I was driving to work, I said, this is probably a, 
you know, I talk to you all the time, but I don't really stop and listen to you. And I've, I can't really say I've ever heard anything directly from you, and I would like to do that. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to shut up now, and you talk. Mm -hmm. And I was driving along, and suddenly I had a perception of everything I was looking at like I'd never seen it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like a fourth dimension. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly I almost thought, I said, that's a distraction. You know, I can't hear you if I see you this mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. And I, it was not an audible voice, but mm -hmm. in my mind, these mm -hmm. words came so clear. Mm -hmm. That's no distraction. That's part of my creation. Mm -hmm. And I got very, very quiet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly, out of that quietness, I heard these words. Not again audible. It was like my, in my mm -hmm. inner being pressing out, peace I leave with you. Mm -hmm. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. Mm -hmm. Let not your heart be troubled, neither mm -hmm. let it be afraid. Mm -hmm. I was very, I don't know whether the word's terrified or what, because that was not a scripture I was even familiar with mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking this was June the 25th, 1975. Mm -hmm. And I remember <coughs> thinking that's probably scripture. I would like to know where, you know, where it is. Mm -hmm. But as I was driving to work, it was repeated to me twice more. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing I heard was John 14. Look at John 14. Mm -hmm. When I got to work, I looked in John 14. And there in the 27th mm -hmm. verse, of course, he had used the very translation mm -hmm. I had. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and uh, I wrote it down. I still have the yellow piece of paper that I wrote it down on. Do you sew it inside your coat? <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, it was interesting that day I put it in my shirt pocket and I could not recall the verse. Mm -hmm. he, he made sure I could not recall it mm -hmm. so that I would know that he had spoken it to me. Mm -hmm. But later on, I learned that every word of God, every verse, is just as true from God as if he'd spoken it to me as if he did that verse. That's right. Well, I, I tell you what, um, for me, practically, I think what it means is that you just spend more time in prayer. You know, you turn off the TV, you clear out an evening, you go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who's unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And I think that some of that reward could be this side of heaven, and some of it could be on the other side. You going to say one more thing? Yes, I, I was going to say that I believe this followed the time where I had felt a need to to fast, not from food, but from all media, not watch any television or mm -hmm. listen to any radio or read any newspapers, but just feed on God's Word alone mm -hmm. and, you know, pray to Him. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's very practical, isn't it? Yeah. And that's where the rubber meets the road. You have to pay the price of turning away from things so that you can turn to God. And I call that repentance anyway. You're turning away from to God and turning to Christ and saying you're enough for me and realize what it means about you if you don't think about that think about what that means if you don't yes you spoke about um, a motivation for this seeking this being to bear usefulness would different people experience different motivations and have different motivations for example one might really just be utterly fascinated by Jesus and Yeah, there, I think there's a set of them that are given in Scripture. It wouldn't just be the one. 
But I, I guess what I'm doing is I'm kind of tracing them all down to the bottom product. And what is God doing in the world? He's building his kingdom. Now, we're part of that. So our own sanctification in and of itself is a valid goal that we might be further along in our love for God. And, and that's a valid goal. But you know, it never stops there. If you're moved along further in your maturity, you're going to be more fruitful for God too. So anyway, I, I guess that's my, my thought. And so uh, I think it's just very significant. It, it just says that you believe that the forms of entertainment that you're choosing or the way you want to spend your time will bring you more personal pleasure and joy than anything that could happen in your private prayer closet or anything else. And once you realize that about yourself, that's when you start to sit up and take notice about the true state of your soul. Uh, Jonathan Edwards used to say that... Uh, the uh, measure and the vitality of your of your life is connected to what you do in your secret prayer closet and your private devotions with God. So that's kind of that nobody sees. It's just between you and God, and that's kind of a, a barometer or a, or it's a picture of what you really love and what you really yearn for and what you're hungry for. And if you're not there, if you're listening and you're feeling convicted, my feeling is the Lord is gracious and compassionate to people like us. He's gracious to us. He wants to love us. He wants to pour out His love on us. He really does. And He accepts people who will come and turn and say, you know, I've not been seeking you. I've not been hungry for you. I've been satisfied with worldly things. I want, I've wanted other things. And uh, like it says in one of the prophets, other masters than you have ruled over us. You know, it's true. I've, I've bowed the knee at other altars than you. And I'm sorry. I don't want to live that way. And He is gracious to accept that, to take you back. But along with that comes kind of a warning. If today you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. If you feel inside yourself right now like, boy, I didn't want to be at Acts the rest of the time. I want to go pray. Well, don't fail to do that tonight. Don't fail to listen because these feelings, these senses don't come around a lot. You know. So if you're feeling that He's leading you to increase your prayer life and be hungry and thirsty for Him, then, then do that. You know, Just obey Him. All right, take your sheets and we've got about 10 minutes to look at prayer. And we'll talk more about it. Prayer. What is prayer? Why does God want us to pray? And how can we pray effectively? Grudem gives a definition. Prayer is personal communication with God. Uh, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? It's a matter, manner of us communicating to God and speaking to Him. Different types of prayer. and uh, There are listed nine different things. Uh, first, prayer requests for ourselves. Uh, prayer of request for others, what we could call petition or intercession. Confession of sin. Uh, adoration, praise and worship you can do in prayer. Thanksgiving you can do in prayer. Lament, that means being very sorrowful or sad for something in your life or something you know about. Imprecation is one of the prayers in Psalms, which is a prayer of woe for an enemy. You say, well, why is that on the list? Just because it's in the book of Psalms, so you want to include it. Um, but there it is. And then the prayer of commitment, uh, in which you're dedicating yourself to the Lord, and a prayer of benediction or blessing, a request for God's blessing. So there's a whole different variety of prayer, uh, different ways that we can communicate to God. Why does God want us to pray? Well, let's start with why He does not want us to pray. He does not want us to pray because He needs our input, wisdom, or advice. Do I need to say that? Maybe I do. I don't know. I mean, we've talked about that before. God is not desperately seeking advice, okay? Can you imagine the level at which he would seek advice? You know, I mean, imagine sitting down with the president right now and he's wrestling with issues of the economy with foreign policy. So I really just want to get your, your opinion. I would eject from the conversation right there. 
You know, you want to ask my opinion on economic problems? I am simply not qualified to give you any in input. And if I were to lead you in any direction, I would fear for the end result. So please don't ask me about the economy or foreign policy, whatever might be on your mind. I am not a good counselor for you. Well, if that's true, can you see how humbled you should be if the president would ask you your advice on something like that? You should give none, okay? You really should be because it's just too important. You might actually mislead the man, okay? But if that's true at that level, how much more would it be true at the level of the sovereign running of the universe? Please sit down. I'm having, I'm having trouble working out a specific aspect of my sovereign plan. Would you please give me some advice? I am not qualified for that, okay? I'm not. I, I have no advice to give. And if you, in all of your experience, you who are the ancient of days, don't know how to work it out, how in the world can I, who was born yesterday, give you any input at all? Okay? So what I'm saying is even if God were to come seeking advice from you, you should never give it because you're not qualified. But I can assure you, he will never come seeking advice. He doesn't need our advice. It says in Romans 11, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. So who's going to be his counselor? Sign up for counselor to God class. I mean, what are you going to do? So God does not come to us asking for wisdom, advice, or input. Not at all. Also, he does not want us to pray because he's ignorant of our true needs. Not at all. It says in Matthew 6, 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. As a matter of fact, he knows what you need better than you do. Frankly, often his opinion is different than yours. Have you ever noticed that? That God's opinion of what you truly need is different from your opinion of what you truly need? How is that proven? Well, providence is a good proof of that. The things you actually get might be somehow tied to God's assessment of what you truly need. Okay? Uh, also, God does not want us to pray because he does nothing without prayer. And I must stop on this a little longer than the other two, which are somewhat ridiculous. But this one is not because it's actually kind of a teaching. It's centered on that kind of human-centered faith type thing that God does nothing unless people pray. Is that true? Tell me some great thing, immense thing that God did with no prayer at all. Creation. creation. That's a very good example of something God did. How do you know that there's no prayer involved in creation? Because there was no one there to pray. Okay, so God wove together this entire universe with all of its ecosystems and stars and planets and all of that, he wove that whole thing together without any prayer at all? That is true. All right? How about the redemptive plan? How many people do you think were praying that God would send his son incarnate to die in our place on the cross? I'm telling you right now, the angels yearned to look into these things and didn't understand ahead of time. Very, very difficult to have predicted fully the plan of God, even when it was spelled out in the prophets. You know what I'm saying? Looking back, we can see the prophecies. Psalm 22 must be speaking of crucifixion. But looking ahead, it's really hard to see, isn't it? And so the fact of the matter is, I imagine, though I can't prove it from Scripture, but I do imagine that there was not a single person on the face of the earth praying that God would send His Son incarnate and that He would die on a cross or that he would be raised from the dead. And so I, I have to think that these are major things that God did without prayer. And we could go on. 
All right? So that gives me, at least at that big scale, a sense that God doesn't need us to pray in order for something to happen. This is what the Lord says, Isaiah 44, 24. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. A good reminder for us, don't you think? I didn't need you. Isaiah 63, 3. I have trodden the winepress alone from the nations. No one was with me, said God. There's no one to do it. And then Matthew 5.45, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Many times, I would guess, He sends rain without any prayer at all. Now, sometimes it's clear in Scripture in the book of James and other places that some rainstorms were directly prayed for. And sometimes farmers now pray. But I, I think it rains all over the earth all the time. How many of those rainstorms do you think God sends and nobody prayed for it at all? I would have to imagine, we can't prove it from Scripture, but a good number of these things that God does, He does without anyone praying for it. Has anyone prayed that your chair would hold together under your weight tonight, do you think? Do you think we need to? Or is God going to uphold or sustain that through His providence? I'm just telling you, God does many things without prayer. However, I do believe He withholds certain things until we pray for them. I think He does that. And, and the whole thing we're talking about the first half of this evening, he may, that experience, you may never have it if you don't ask for it. You know what I'm saying? He, may, he will just withhold it until you die if you don't ask for it. You do not have because you do not ask God. So there are some things he withholds, some category of things he withholds and will not give them unless we ask him. And so many things we don't ask for. Isn't that true? There's just so many things that we just never ask him for. All right? So why does he want us to pray? First, to develop and express trust and reliance on God so that we would develop and, and express that we trust Him, that we rely on Him. Secondly, to conform our wills to His and our characters to His. An analogy is of the, the, the boat, let's say a rowboat, out, out uh, in, in the lake. And uh, you, you cast a, a, a grappling hook with the rope onto the shore and you start to pull. Do you believe that you're pulling the shore to the boat? Is that what you think is happening there? Okay, how mighty are you, after all? Are you pulling the shore to the boat? Well, in a relative sense, you know, everything's relative. I, it seems that way. The shore keeps getting closer and closer. But the fact of the matter is, you're the one that's moving. And I openly ask God to do this in prayer. I say, Lord, change my mind when I pray. Show me how I'm thinking wrongly. I know that there's nothing wrong with your plan. There's nothing wrong with the way you're thinking. So show me how I'm thinking wrongly about this list of prayer requests and transform me and my will to yours. Thirdly, to teach us patience. That's why the uh, <coughs> pouring out happens at 3 in the morning, not at 10.30 the previous eve. You know, it happens after a long time of prayer. It happens after we've sought him with patience, to teach us patience. Fourth, to humble us and remind us of our total dependence. Prayer does humble us, doesn't it? It does. It humbles us. It makes us humble. And it shows us that we're totally dependent on Him. But it also it exalts us, doesn't it? How does prayer exalt us? In what way does prayer exalt us? Okay. Okay. That's right. That's right. What does it show about your position? You can come boldly before His throne. And why? Because we're needy and because we're a child of God. We're, we're part of the royal family. He has given to us the right to become children of God. And it's His children He'll listen to. And so it, it humbles us at the same time that it exalts us. That's an amazing thing. 
uh, it also makes us fruitful. One of the things about it, I, I'm memorizing Psalms right now, and I keep seeing over and over in David, he will hear me when I call to him. He will hear me. David is fully convinced of this. And that's very convicting for me. And what it shows me is he's just fully confident that no matter what babbling I lisp through my lips, he's going to listen to it. That's very exalting, isn't it? Even if we're so wrong. He's going to pay careful attention and listen to what we say. And it's going to matter. It's going to matter. He's going to make us fruitful. He, he wants us to pray so that we will be fruitful as we join him in his work. That's John 15. We'll talk more about that. Uh, number seven, to bring us joy. How does prayer bring you joy? Well, the whole first half of this evening, you can see the connection between prayer and joy. If God were to do something like that to you, you'd never have experienced so much joy as that. But just even in the so-called steady state ministry of the church, how does prayer bring joy? Yeah. Focus back on Christ. We're focusing back on Him. Yes. Well, I was thinking that first testimony of Caroline's the character. You think of our joy is so, at least my joy is so decreased because of all the cares I have. That's right. A removal of obstacles to joy. You know, I'd be so joyful if I didn't have these six things I was so anxious about. Well, cast them on the Lord. Trust in Him. And then the joy comes. So good. That's wonderful. To focus again on Christ and to cast all our cares on Him. Yes? If, if God does something great and we hear about it, then we're the spectators. But if we were praying for that's right. something to happen, then we participate. We have that's exactly we right. That's exactly right. I'm going to say it at the end because we're not going to get to it tonight. But I really believe that in so many of these specific prayer requests, it's like buying shares in a company. It really is almost exactly like that. How many people wish that they'd bought stock in Microsoft back in 1985? You know, I wish I just had a thousand dollars worth of Microsoft stock, 85 vintage. You know, I mean, what would that be worth right now? It's just hard to even imagine. I mean, well, I mean, you know how many millionaires he's made out there? People who did have a thousand dollars worth of his stock early on. I mean, there's just so many, and that's a terrible analogy because there's so many things about that company that's not worth honoring. But I guess what I'm saying is that it, it, when you pray for something, it's like buying stock in it, and when it doubles or the dividends come in, you get in proportion to the shares you bought. You know, you prayed once, you get one share worth of joy. Yes. And just really knowing you're in His presence is the greatest joy. And that's right. That's so true. God is that. And number eight, to teach us to love one another by bearing each other's burdens. This is exactly the opposite of Cain's mentality. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, I think that's in us, isn't it? We're like Cain, aren't we? I don't care. So what if your aunt's having her gallbladder out? What is that to me? All right? Well, that's very cold. It's not God's way of thinking. He doesn't think that way. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of your father and even very hairs on your head are numbered. So I think prayer drives out a callous indifference for the brothers and sisters in Christ and, and it transforms situations. Number nine, to intensify our godly passions. We spent the whole first three quarters of our time tonight talking about that. Number ten, to help us live up to our responsibilities, to grow up, to be mature, and then finally to bring, us, bring him glory. All right, God willing, we'll talk more about this next time. Let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Landis, could I ask you to do that for us? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.